0: rather than having to wait until you're 65. If you're ready to take immediate action, join us over at cashflowtactics.com forward slash podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome back to the Rise Up Live Free podcast. This episode is going to be a very, very special one. I have a mentor of mine, a friend of mine, uh a guy who i have learned a ton from and if you listen to this podcast it will be impossible not to learn lee uh lee arnold everybody lee's our guest today lee why don't you say hi to everybody
2: hi everybody hi jimmy thanks for having me here
1: thank you uh for being on so lee is going to be the keynote speaker in a couple of weeks at our cash flow heaven uh event uh it's still you can still get tickets for that it is uh second week of May. But uh, Lee, thank you for uh, joining us in St. Louis in a couple of weeks.
2: Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks for having me. It's going to be a lot of fun. So
1: I met Lee through the uh, Collective Genius. And uh, so Lee, we well, don't usually do video podcasts. And you know, at the Collective Genius, at most professional things, you are simply the most, generally the most well-dressed person in the room. <laughs> and... You know, generally, I would say I come in unless I'm in some type of leadership position at an event. I generally come in at maybe the bottom third of best dressed. <laughs> so uh, I just start there. Why? Why always a uh, suit and tie? Where'd that come from?
2: You know, it, it's interesting because when I started investing in real estate, I was 18 years old, and I think I went through puberty when I was 25. So imagine, you know, this baby faced kid showing up in your house saying, I want to buy your home for 300 grand. And you're looking at him going, what do you mean you're going to buy my, you you don't even have a job. You're 18 years old. So I started wearing suits just so that I would look a little bit older than I really was when I started doing this business. Uh, And then as quickly as I could grow facial hair, I grew facial hair just so I would look even a little bit older. Uh, But now, you know, it's been 27, 28 years since I did that. And the suit just kind of became my costume. Uh, What I tell people is who is Superman without his cape? He's a geeky newspaper reporter named Clark Clark Kent, right? But put a cape on him and he can fly and, you know, do all kinds of crazy things. So I just say that my suit is my cape for doing business.
1: Gotcha. So, I bring that story up because we became buddies uh, when we went to that house build in Mexico. Yeah. And, you know, I assume completely wrong that, you know, hey, you know, Lee, he's low, he's in a suit. Lee might be kind of a little stiff. <laughs> and like, I was fast. So for the audience, um, one, I think it was like 2019, right?
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh,
1: um, uh, Scott Myers does a great job with a uh, youth with a mission and we go down to Mexico and we, we build houses. And then when I tell people about my real real estate story, Lee, I tell, I tell people about that trip and it's you and me spend probably six hours building a roof Yep. and it was, school was in session. It was, it was amazing because, <laughs> you know, we didn't know each other that well, but then I'm thinking there, I'm like. Man, Lee seems pretty smart. And I just started following you around the roof. You'd be like, Jimmy, put this nail here, put this nail here. And then I'd be like, Lee, how do you do this in business? And how do you do that in business? And what's that all about? And that was, quite frankly, the, the most enriching six-hour crash course I've ever gotten in real estate. It was incredible.
2: <laughs> uh, Jimmy, do you remember the, like, like the the most critical component of that? What was like your biggest takeaway, biggest aha moment? Do you remember what it was?
1: Yeah. uh, I. You don't run businesses unless they make three times your payroll and four times marketing with a 30% profit margin. That is like, I was having that conversation yesterday (laughs) with someone. Like, I don't do this without a 30% profit margin. And they're like, well, can we hire another person? I'm like, I don't know. What's our gross revenue say? That was um, like, because I, that was at the time in our business when we were trying to build a team, right? And I didn't understand when to hire when to fire you know really really it was like a six hour uh, hiring and leadership lesson hammering nails <laughs> into that roof
2: <laughs> yeah well and what you have done since then is unbelievable i mean in the last several years since we built that roof together and we've built several more since which has been awesome going down to mexico Uh, But man, you've just built this incredible business. I'm really impressed with what you've got, what you're doing, what your clients are doing. It's phenomenal. So congratulations.
1: Thank you, Lee. Like I would not have had. And then like a month later, we met at CG and like it was like a uh, uh, like a Dr. Phil session. And it was like, Lee, I'm messing this (laughs) up. I'm messing that up. And you're just like, Jimmy, you're not stupid. You're just ineffective. (laughs) (laughs)
2: You know, it's always interesting for me to hear my advice being restated by by the by the person who heard it, because it always sounds so much less eloquent than I meant it to sound. You know, it's like right. just just go get it done. You know, and I like to say, you know, you're it just doesn't happen the way you want it to. But I, well, I'm I, glad the results are are there, and you're doing incredible things.
1: That could be a teacher and student thing, because, you know, I don't necessarily understand really eloquent things. I, it's more direct. Direct advice does best for
2: me. <laughs> well, you're doing well. Good job. So
1: for, for the audience, Lee, and I'd like you do have one of the most interesting real estate stories uh, ever. And so, um, so why don't I, so you started in real estate when you were 18, right? Right. Yep. And I, I don't remember the details exactly, but you hired a coach. The coach gave you a target. You hit the target and the guy thought you'd never hit it. And then you basically drove from Court d'Alene to Florida for looking for a job, right?
2: Yeah. So I was 18 working at a grocery store, making 390 an hour, saw an infomercial on TV about getting rich in real estate. If you remember the infomercials of the nineties. Uh, and so I went, and i gave him all my money maxed out my credit cards refinance my truck to get startup capital uh, how much do you think it was uh i i want to say it was 18 or 1900 dollars. now this okay. is almost 30 years ago so i would yeah you know it's like 10 grand today so it was quite a bit of money when you're making minimum wage and paying to put yourself through college because we didn't have the same student loan programs available in the 90s as we have today thank the lord because i'd probably be a hundred thousand dollars in student loan debt but uh, i refinanced my truck to get startup capital seed capital to uh, do my first deal and after i did my first deal i split 30 grand with a partner and i read kiyosaki's book rich dad poor dad and he said two things that were critical for me he said you need to have multiple streams of income and you need to surround yourself with wealthy, successful people. Well, I grew up on a farm, so I didn't know wealthy, successful people. I knew hard work because farming is hard work, but I didn't know anybody that that was successful in business. So I asked if I could go work for this real estate investment training company who put on the infomercial. And they said, uh, well, you need two years in sales. You need to have sales experience to work for us. So go get two years in sales and and call us. So I did. I quit my job at the grocery store. I dropped out of college and I went and started selling packaging uh, just so I could get experience as a salesperson. And after two years, the anniversary of my second year, I called that company and I said, hey, I want want to come work with you guys. Hire me. So they did. So I moved from uh, Spokane, Washington down to Cape Coral, Florida. And I spent the next year on the road putting on real estate investment seminars and eventually became a coach and eventually went out on my own. And now I've been training and educating clients through my system for the last 20 years.
1: And when you you took that packaging sales job, were you still doing flips? Were you still side hustling in real estate?
2: Yeah, it was a traveling sales position, but it was local. So I covered four states, Washington, Idaho, Montana, and Oregon. Uh, and so I was on the road Monday through Friday, and I would come home and I would work on my houses Saturday, Sunday, and I was flipping houses while out selling packaging. That is, and then
1: um, I I don't want you to fast forward the story of meeting your wife as a, uh, you, as a back of the, so a lot of people in our community, they've been probably to the the weekend real estate seminar. And uh, what do you call, you know, what would you say your role was at that point?
2: Uh, we were back of the room salespeople. So you've got a speaker in the front of the room talking about the merits of investing and the package and the program. And then they push everybody to the back of the room where we then are there to answer questions and process credit cards. So as a back it's of the room a, sales guy. And you
1: are the only person I know to have met your wife as a, as a back of the uh, room <laughs> sales guy. I mean, I just bring that up, not because it's relevant, because it's awesome.
2: <laughs> well, in my defense, she was not actually a student. So she was not attending the seminar that we were putting on. Uh, we had partnered with a mortgage company and one of the ladies at the mortgage company uh, introduced us. She had a sister. So we got introduced and um, that's where it all began. We got married two years later.
1: I That is one of my, that's my favorite real estate education story. <laughs>
2: So yeah, how, how, long, how long,
1: how long, how long did you work at the back of the room? Uh,
2: I did that for uh, just about a year. Uh, and I was living in Cape Coral, Florida, and I met my wife, Jacqueline, and she was living in Salt Lake City, Utah. And so I transferred from Cape Coral, they had another division in Utah doing coaching and fulfillment. So I moved from Cape Coral, Florida to Salt Lake so I could be closer to my wife. And I started doing consulting, real estate education consulting. Uh, So Jimmy, when guys like you and I sell uh, packages to teach people how to invest in real estate, we've got to have people that have those weekly calls with them. Well, that's what I did 25 years ago. I was the fulfillment guy. Um, And so I would spend every week on the phone with people just um, going through what they've accomplished this week, what do they need to get done next week, and and really holding them accountable. Uh, The biggest missing piece for a lot of beginning real estate investors is the accountability piece. Somebody that's checking in, holding them accountable, managing them to their key performance indicators, making sure that they're hitting their dial and mail and offer writing metrics to, to really achieve success. Uh, and I really enjoyed it, it was great. And a lot of my clients went on to become six, seven, and eight figure real estate income earners. It was very rewarding.
1: Here's a question that just popped in my mind. So I agree with you completely that it's the, it's the accountability, it's the KPIs, right? How, how do you put a cost benefit, if you were, if you were new, because what's everybody's main objection is like, I'm not going to pay that. That's outrageous, right? And then how do you how do you call, how do you put a price on someone holding you accountable?
2: How do you put a price on hold, somebody holding you accountable? Well, it really boils down to exactly what it is you want them to hold you accountable for. But right, you would it, like it, I, I'm just
1: I'm going to put myself back in that mindset of before I can I tell you a funny story about my start. Yeah. So. Like I, well, I got out of the army, Um, I read Rich Dad Port in, in Iraq. And then it was like, I had just started my new corporate job and I went into sales because Kiyosaki said, go into sales. Yeah, And so I'll never forget. And then I was buying houses while I was deployed. Like that's how I got started. I'll never forget going to a weekend seminar, at Kiyosaki, where it, essentially they taught lease options. I didn't understand that's what it was at the time, but I, I want to say I went with my mom. Um, because my mom was interested in real estate and we spent like 20 grand. Right. And we bought the coaches. I was still in the military doing a weekly call with like a coach, somebody like you. Right. And like, at the time I'm like, I'm paying 20 grand just for somebody to, (laughs) to tell me to do my weekly task. And like, if we would, if you were to come to our family, a family event of ours, right. And you bring up that Kiyosaki seminar with my mom, she'd be like those sons of bitches, (laughs) <laughs> like they robbed us, and I'm like, I'm like, Mom, you're a successful real estate investor, and I'm like, and then I'm like, Mom, my my sister's in real estate, my brother's in real estate, I'm in real estate. I'm like, that was the best twenty grand we ever spent. So that's right. I get. I think I'm describing a mindset issue that I'm unable to articulate. For me, it's just bull force. Like send them the check and make sure you get a return. But at the end of the day, how you know? I'm imagining this sales pitch. I'm going to. you're going to pay me a certain amount of money for me to remind you what you said you wanted to do, which by the way, owning a business, that's essentially what you do anyway, but that's a, that's another issue, but you know, uh, how would, you know, how would you say to you, how would you say to me in 2008, like, I'm not paying that for that account? You know what I mean? Cause I was an right. army ranger. I should have been able to hold myself accountable, but I couldn't without a coach.
2: Right. Well, and it goes back to how we even come into this world from birth, right? We are born into this this world without the ability to take care of ourselves. So we have parents that nurture us, care for us, and tell us what to do. And then they put us into public school or private school, whatever it is, where we have a teacher telling us what to do. Then some go to college, some go in the military where we have somebody else telling us what to do. Then we go and we get a job and we have a boss or a manager that tells us what to do, how much we have to get done, how many hours we have to work, when we can go on vacation. They even tell us how much money we can make. It's called a job. And 90% of Americans are employed by someone other than themselves. So for the person, and the older you are, the harder it is to break out of this habit of somebody else telling you what to do. Now, as you become an entrepreneur and a business owner, you now are required and responsible to not only tell yourself what to do, but to hold yourself accountable to do it. Well, what happens when the boss leaves? What happens when the teacher brings in a sub, right? everybody goes crazy. Nobody's getting anything done because there's nobody there holding them accountable. So really successful people, and I have found over my career that the more successful somebody is, the more money they are spending on coaches and consultants and experts to hold them accountable. You know, I'm like you, Jimmy, when I went to my first my first real estate investor seminar, I literally gave them every dollar I had. Well, what's the value of that investment? Well, I've gone on to make hundreds of millions of dollars and I've lent billions of dollars. Well, without that 1800 bucks and maxing, maxing out my credit cards, none of what I do today would have been possible because it was the catalyst to get me where I am now. But back then somebody asking me $20,000 for consulting, Are you are you kidding me? That's insane. Fast forward to today, I'm spending well over a quarter of a million dollars every year on masterminds and executive coaches and CEO level coaches and I mean, you name it because I no longer look at those things as an expense. They are an investment. And with every investment, I expect and demand a return on that investment. And the highest rate of return in business is number one on employees. So like you mentioned, if I'm not getting a 300% return on employee investment, then they're out. Higher level executive employees that I have on my payroll, I expect a five to 800% rate of return. So the greatest return on investment in business is employees. The second greatest return on investment is in masterminds, coaches, consultants, and people holding you accountable. I mean, we talk about real estate and cap rates, right? And oh, I I just bought an apartment building, I'm getting a 12 cap. Okay, so you're getting a 12% rate of return on your money. Meanwhile, I can go hire an employee and get a 300% return on investment. Where should I put my money? But most people never put it in those terms because they don't know how, or they've never been taught to think that way. So what you said is dead on. It's it's a it's a mindset. It's a shift in how you think and how you see the world.
1: And then yeah, that's because the thing in cash flow tactics is you got to have the core four four pillars. Something you appreciates. It cash flows. It has tax advantages, and you can use leverage. And there's three things in the market that you get that with: real estate, owning your own business, and the vault or a whole whole life insurance. So, you know, you're preaching to the choir. And then I, I was just thinking, I'm like, I can't remember the last time I didn't spend six figures on coaching or masterminds. Yep. And then for me personally, it's like, oh my god, I'm paying this for like I owe like CG, the quarterly meetings at CG are the greatest accountability things for me personally, just because it's like, Hey, I am leaving my wife and family for a week, four times a year. Like I have to get a return on this. Everything I said I was going to do that quarter. I have to do like, I play this game in my head. Like I can't show up with Jason and Leon and not have my stuff done. Like, it's like, I know they don't care. It's not in their radar at all, but I just, I played this game with my head, with myself.
2: <laughs> well, the greatest accountability is when you teach, right? And you've gone from being a CG attendee to being a CG trainer leader. I mean, you're now the guy on the stage that everybody's looking to for guidance and 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 advice and counsel. Um, and that, which means you've got a spotlight like, on you. And that, I'm assuming you you're probably
1: the same way. My favorite thing about coaching and leading is like. I gotta make sure every morning I do it myself. Like I can't be telling these other people to do it than me not doing it.
2: Right. Right. Like
1: that's but, been the greatest accountability thing.
2: But even even as good as you are though, Jimmy, and and for anybody listening, it doesn't matter what level you've you've risen to uh, based on goals you've established for yourself or income targets that you've been pursuing, uh, the, the higher up you go, the greater the level of accountability because the easier it is to become complacent, you know, when I, when I was uh, scraping to make payroll, I was really driven, right, because I had to go make money just to get people paid. Well, now put a couple million bucks in the bank earning 10 12% interest, and, and you've got enough to cover everything you've got without getting out of bed. You've got to have something else driving you, somebody else motivating you, a, a bigger, better reason for what you're pushing towards and why you're pushing there. You know, it's no longer about making myself wealthy. It's about now making my employees and my clients wealthy. So that's what drives me, but that requires a whole new level of accountability and coaching and oversight and mastermind groups. So you should always be looking to upscale who you're surrounding yourself with.
1: And then this might be an interesting tangent to go down. So I think when I first started, what you just said is, I just want enough money so I don't have to get out of bed in the morning, which personally, I believe is a, um, I've gone in the last year, I heard, I heard somebody Tell me this phrase, like true freedom isn't freedom from constraint. It's freedom to pursue excellence. And like you've coached 10,000 people. Would you agree that like 80% of those people, it they start out with, they're looking from freedom from constraint. Either their boss is a jerk. They're tired of money problems. Uh, they're tired of all that stuff. And I feel like that's the most dangerous place to be in. I know personally, that was a worse place for me.
2: Yeah, well, they're, they're pursuing freedom from a place of fear or a place of anger or a place of rage. Uh, and it's, it's very much all about them. And I have found making money to be the most challenging when I'm trying to solve my problems. You know, if you consider what business really is, business is about creating systems and strategies and process to make other people's lives better. So even as we look at real estate investing, why do we do it? Because I can take some of the most rundown, dilapidated houses in, in any town in America uh, that are dangerous and create a safety hazard for the kids in those communities that are devaluing the surrounding neighborhoods. And by me coming in and investing time, energy, effort, and knowledge into that property, I make it one of the nicest houses on the block. Now we've got a great family who's living there, making their payments, covering their taxes, uh, beautifying the neighborhood, boosting up property values for everybody that's there. Now, do I make a profit? Sure, of course. I'm a for-profit organization. I have to make money. But that's not my focus. And I think if people would, would kind of remove themselves from the equation as to their why and focus on who am I serving, really, who benefits from this business venture that I'm, that I'm pursuing? If we can focus on them and make them our why, you know, in uh, Simon Sinek's book, Start With Why. Well, how about why? Because there's people hurting that that need quality, affordable housing. And if you would, you know, invest the time energy and effort to learn how to do this the right way, you could really bless a lot of people. You know, whether you believe in God or you believe in the universe or whatever whatever, you, whatever you construct you want to subscribe to, when you make other people your priority, you will just in, inherently improve financially, medically, physically, relationally. Everything's better when it's about others.
1: But Lee, Karl Marx and all the hippies in the university say that business owners, we're just, we're just stepping on the backs of our, of our employees. And that business is a zero-sum game.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, Karl Marx never had employees that had families that had mortgage payments and car payments and ho- hopes and dreams and desires to go on vacations and one day start their own businesses. You know, my my employees are nothing more than um, people assisting me to serve others while serving themselves to rise themselves up so that they can stop working for me, go start their own businesses and serve others as well. You know, I, I think the greatest example of this is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ trained 12 and those 12 trained hundreds and those hundreds have tra- trained thousands and those thousands have trained millions and now billions, you know. So if we can just pour what we know into a handful of people and help them improve their situation, even if that be the homeowners that are are at risk of losing their home to a foreclosure or a tax sale or a lien abatement from a city due to the property's condition, if the focus is service oriented, yeah, we have to make a profit, but that's that's not the goal, at least not for me. Now, admittedly, I'm no saint. Uh, and early in my career, it was all about the Benjamins, right? I wanted to make as much money as I could and get as rich as I could. Uh, but then 2008 came, and it was kind of God's way of saying, really? Is it really all about the money? Uh, and I lost $40 million in construction that I had undergoing. I had 85 rentals, you know, in the peak of eight and the crash of eight, nine. It was brutal. It was painful. Uh, so I'm glad we're doing this this podcast now, Jimmy, and not 15 years ago, pre 2008, uh, because I was a different guy and I had a different message.
1: And then I, so I, I went through the exact same paradigm because I, I had a coach, and I was just like, you know, we're just not making enough money. And then the coach said, "Hey, Jimmy, you know what? I'm going to invite you." He's like, "Give me the You have here's three things. Prioritize them for me. It's profit." Team customer. And I was like, "Of course, that's profit. Team customer. That's the order. And he's like, "Hey, I'd invite you to consider it should be team, customer, profit. And essentially, what he was saying is if you pursue excellence as, as a team and serve your customer, profit will come. Mm-hmm. And so how do you how, you know, how do you coach Do you think you could tell do you think you could tell me right out of the army and you at eighteen that that's true? How could you actually, I think some, do you think you could learn that without being punched in the face?
2: (laughs) No, no. And it was it Mike Tyson who said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, my plan was extreme profit. And then 2008 punched me in the face. Uh, And, you know, getting punched in the face in business happens very differently for different people. For some, it could be the breakup of a partnership. Others, uh, I've just seen some very prominent businesses going under with interest rates rising as dramatically as they have, and they're getting punched in the face just from the standpoint of capital costs. Uh, people that were doing syndications and they went out and they ran all of their numbers based on three percent financing and they had an adjustable sixty months later and it's now adjusting, uh, and they went from a three percent capital cost to a seven and a half eight percent capital cost and no longer to the deal's cash flow. So they're getting punched in the face. Uh, everybody gets punched in the face differently, but it shouldn't stop you. Failure is only when you quit. Uh, everything else is learn and improve. Now, what I was told is. If you take care of your employees, your employees will take care of your customers and your customers will take care of your bottom line. So similar statement to what you said, just a different way of putting it. But yeah, it's really the team that we have to invest time, energy, talent, and treasure into. And beyond team, it's really about uh, the, the nature of your business. What is, what is your core? Uh, what are you about what What drives the enterprise? Is it profit or is it service? Is it helping? And I can tell you, uh, for our company, the culture is we want to serve service first,
1: and you guys seem to be chasing freedom to pursue something, whether it's excellence, service like have you guys articulated it? like what are you guys what is that? you know you kind of hinted at it that there's a higher level purpose. It's not about collecting, collecting checks? Like, what is that, that higher purpose that your team's chasing?
2: So I subscribe to something called BAM, which is B-A-A-M, which stands for business as a ministry. Now, one of the masterminds that I'm affiliated with is a group called C12. Now C12 is a, a mastermind group of CEOs who have chosen to run their business on a Christian platform. So we are Christ-minded business entrepreneurs. And business as a ministry means that we're gonna use our platform of business to share Christ with our employees, to share Christ with our with our clients, with our customers, with the people that rent properties from us. Every time somebody moves into one of our properties, they get a daily devotional. They get a brand new Bible for the family. Uh, we invite them to join our nonprofit ministries, which is at heesthesolution.com. Uh, We put on a Be Bold for Jesus conference every year here in the Pacific Northwest. We are the largest Christian conference in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, This year, we've got Jeff Foxworthy coming out, uh, Danny Gokey from American Idol, um, Lee Strobel from A Case for Christ. So our vision, our purpose is to generate profits to feed the ministry, Now, there's a lot of people uh, probably listening, Jimmy, that have these grand visions of providing housing for the homeless or feeding the homeless or going on mission trips. That's great. But all of those things require cost, right? Uh, So there's a great book um, called Gospel Patrons. I'll show it to you. Yeah, I'm writing that down. Gospel Patrons by John Reinhart. And the premise of this book is that anybody who's done anything of significance for Christ was financed by a prominent business owner or business leader because those mission trips have budgets, they have expenses. So for us as business owners, we have this incredible opportunity to to serve our clients and our customers well, to generate profits and be good stewards of that profit, but then invest it into organizations like the mission trip that we go on in November where we build houses in Ensenada, Mexico. Those things would not be profitable without or would not be possible possible without profit from our for-profit enterprises so business as a ministry that's what drives me
1: have you um have you ever read monk and the merchant no i haven't it's so mark de actually gave me that book but i was like i was struggling spiritually with the whole um you know because there's some spicy things in the gospels about about making money yep and it you know there's that line between love of money is the greatest of all evils and just well, Hey, money's just a medium of exchange. And so there's a, a certain sense of detachment, but I really struggled with that until, and that book helped me with that. And then, uh, you know, I have a spiritual mentor that he he was like, Oh my God, you're a mess. But like, <laughs> he's, like six months, we like, all, all we're going to worry about is detachment. Like these are just these, these rec green rectangles you're chasing all day are simply a medium of exchange. And like, There's got to be a higher purpose to this. Otherwise, one, you're going to burn out. Two, it's just you're going to be as miserable as you are today.
2: Yeah. And and I think for a new entrepreneur or somebody that's looking to get into business or real estate or start their own company, you know, I I think you need to have a, a number of goals, but one of those needs to be tied to what is your mission focus? So obviously we need to make money, obviously we need to have a good product and a good service, but what is the mission? What is the the thing that we're going to support financially through the success of this business? Uh, One of the guys in my mastermind group just bought a very, very large company. uh, And he, as part of their acquisition, they have dedicated 51% to missionary work. So 51% of their profits is going to missionary work. And they bought it with that as the structure. They literally put God in. They put God in as 51% owner of that enterprise. And 51% of the profits are just shelling that out. So I understand that everybody listening here is probably not a spiritual person and I'm not trying to make people feel bad. So like I said, if you subscribe to the universe or Muhammad or Buddha or Joseph Smith or whoever it is you you follow, uh, I can tell you this. if If the focus of the business has some component of doing good, while doing well, you're you're going to have a much better experience as an entrepreneur, as a business owner.
1: And I will, uh, you know, I'm pretty good at like zero to one, like I kind of uh, start with a big vision and then I, I think I'm decent where my like unique ability comes in is I can do zero to one, right? And so like this, the zero to one thing, I think starting like what you're talking about is just start tithing 10%. Yep. And then it became a, like, when I first started doing it, like, we we were not in a cash position that I, I, you know, we weren't in a great cash position, right? But, like, it became, like, a challenge. Like, oh, like, come on, you're not so addicted to this 10% that you can't part with it. And then it just became a, a game. A, <laughs> a, a, like, I'm not this weak. I can do this. And then no. it became, like, so the team, like that's on our monthly thing is like, Hey, what are we tithing to this month? And then the other thing I feel like you're talking about is it's, you know, I'm a jock, I'm a meathead, but it's what you're describing is a game, a continuous game that you get to play with people you enjoy. Like I, we were, we were thinking about hiring somebody and like somebody on the interviews, like, man, this person's going to suck the energy out of the room. And like, even though technically the person was perfect. I was like, no way. I'm not going to play this game with people I don't enjoy. Yep. Enjoy being around.
2: Yeah. Culture is huge in business. And as the CEO, as the leader, as the founder, as the president, whatever whatever name you're going to choose to call yourself, uh, you, you have to understand your number one priority is setting the tone of the culture. What is the the business about? What is the business passionate about? What is the business doing to serve? Why is it doing those things? You have to create all of those things. You as the business leader, you as the business owner. So what kind of a culture do you want? Uh, And then you hire first for culture. You hire second for competency. You hire third for compensation, right? So do they fit Are are they going to be a, a strong part of our team to help drive the mission, the vision, the culture of what we're doing here? Secondly, do they have the competency to do the job correctly? And then thirdly, can we afford them from a comp- from a compensation standpoint? And unfortunately, when people interview, especially as they're hiring that first or second critical hire, the first thing they're looking at is they're putting out the wage and saying, "Well, I'm willing to pay X." You know, we we've budgeted eighty thousand dollars for this position. <laughs> Wrong, right? The worst thing you can do is put out what you're willing to pay. That should not be the driver behind who gets hired. The driver should be: Are they a cultural fit to what we're doing? Do they have the competency level to help us take this thing to the next level? And even if we have to stretch and we, we can afford 80, but we're going to give them 120, if they're really good, they should be producing a three to eight hundred percent return on investment. So a hundred thousand dollar employee should be bringing in three hundred, five hundred, eight hundred thousand dollars in additional revenue. But see, we can get we can get lost in this because we get so focused on the competency and the compensation and the upside that we forego and we excuse the the poor cultural fit and they're going to unravel everything you've done and built to have a strong culture so you were wise jimmy to walk uh, on the bad cultural fit even though the other two they were spot on if the culture's not there don't bring them in. Even the Bible says to not be unequally yoked with people in marriage and in business. So if you have differing beliefs or views, or even politics, they, they really could be disruptive to the enterprise.
1: Absolutely. And I, I was smiling when you were telling the story, because in 2019, we were thinking about making two big hires and you were like, you're you like your mindset's all wrong. I'm like, here's my budget for it. Lee. And he's like, you were like, Jimmy, you're a salesman. Go expand your budget and sell your way to it. <laughs> That's why you you that was a direct, you've given me that piece of advice before.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Don't don't hire for the budget because the right person is going to blow your budget out of the water because they're going to do so much incredible things for the organization. They're going to bring new enterprise. They're going to bring new, new income verticals. They're going to maximize what you're already doing and make it even better. I mean, people really are the critical component to a successful business. And so,
1: you know, and then uh, the one thing I've, you know, about teaming and playing this game with people, like it's not just, and this comes back to the earlier part with the coach, like, You have to write down what you want. And then if you want to create culture, you have to write that down and then collaborate with a team and say, hey, is this the, so the, what I see a lot when people are starting is they have big, big visions inside their gut, um, but it's completely unarticulated and it's completely not written down. And so when things get hot and things get spicy, like in the military, we had a mission that the lowest private had to repeat the mission to us before we left the wire, right? And that was so when things got hot and bullets started flying, people knew where to go, where the focus was. And so I find that it's the KPIs, the daily accountability, but also articulating what your vision is.
2: Yep. Yeah, the vision statement should be readily available and present everywhere. Uh, You should have your vision statement and then your core values behind the vision statement. So the vision statement for our company is we get more of what we want by helping others get more of what they want. Pretty simple, yeah. right? So customer first. Yeah.
1: There was this guy like in the 1700s named John Locke. And he was like, hey, if you let humans freely trade together, things will be massively abundant. So it, it, it seems like, hey, over the last, maybe 200 years when people have been free and able to trade and create abundance with each other that maybe you're right, Lee. Maybe you and John Locke got this together. And it's just like, I am so shocked that the whole world doesn't see the whole world like that. It's so, it's so readily apparent to me. It's self-evident.
2: <laughs> it is, but it's self-evident, Jimmy, because you are not only looking for those types of things, but you are willing to receive those types of things. You are open-minded to those types of things. uh, And you're blessed for that because a lot of people grow up in situations and circumstances where they, they do not have an abundance outlook. They grew up in a poor home. They grew up in a one parent household. They grew up on social security or public assistance or food stamps or, or you name it. And so they don't view wealth or opportunity with the same, outlook that that you or I do. Now, I can tell you, I, I grew up on a farm, right? Uh, we were not a wealthy family by any means. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, so we were a single-family household. Uh, and if we couldn't grow it or, or raise it on the farm, we didn't need it. So I think we went out to dinner once a year, uh, and that was only if my grandfather was paying. So, that was one of my biggest hurdles in, in getting in and becoming an entrepreneur and a business owner was just getting out of my own way and not looking at money as something to be possessed, but rather to look at money as a tool to advance the the. the whatever it is we're driving towards. So you mentioned the separation, separating, you know, the, the, the green triangles from, from them actually being money to them actually having a purpose. And for a lot of people, that's where they're going to have to start is I have an abundance mentality. There is opportunity available to me anywhere. I just have to be open to it and look for it. Uh, and it's funny you mentioned Rich Dad, Poor Dad. A- again, for anybody who hasn't read that book, Uh, I would, you got to start there, because I think Kiyosaki does such a good job in just making it, breaking it down, making it so simple to go from being an employee minded person to being a business and entrepreneurial minded person. But it all begins with the change of thought. You have to think differently before you can act differently.
1: And so and then what we have in uh, cash flow tactics is a lot of entrepreneurs. And so, you know, on my team, because I feel like if you watch Instagram enough, that you ha- you don't have a calling to be an entrepreneur. You have a, "Oh, you have to be an entrepreneur to be cool and or get your likes. But I'm not so sure everybody should be a business owner. Everybody should be an entrepreneur, but I do think everybody with an abundance mindset should be an entrepreneur. And basically the way we define entrepreneur versus entrepreneur is an entrepreneur takes their gifts and talents and leverages their big vision inside an already created system.
2: Yep. Like what are
1: your, what are your thoughts on that? Uh,
2: Well, it's the, it's very similar to the visionary and the integrator. Right. So if we look at, um, uh, what's the book I'm thinking of, Traction. Um, traction, thank you. As we look at traction, you know, you've got the visionary who is usually the one who's starting the business. They're the ones going down and forming the LLCs, setting up the bank accounts, leasing the space, building the website, right? They're building the shell, the structure. But visionaries are very poor at growth and scale because they don't integrate well. So I'm a visionary. And I, I can tell you that in the absence of my team, I'd still be flipping a couple of houses a year. It's the entrepreneur that I refer to as the integrator who can come in, see the vision, and then take it from where it is to where it could be. And I, I never want anybody to feel less than being, and I think your term is a good one, an entrepreneur, because they are still open-minded. They're still big thinkers, but they want to take something that exists and take it from 10 to 100 as opposed to taking it from zero to one. Uh, for me, I, I never had the opportunity to be an entrepreneur. And honestly, if I had to go back and do it all over again, I think I would prefer to be an entrepreneur where I can just get involved in something that's already there and not have to deal with all the, the brain damage of the startup phase and the stability phase. I mean, those things were painful. Uh, I much prefer growing companies than starting them now. But I say that 30 years removed from being the, the solopreneur is what, what we all start out as. Uh, right. But yeah, entrepreneurs are critical to a company's success and future growth.
1: And then that's like, for whatever reason, cash flow tactics, we've attracted a ton of entrepreneurs. And so, you know, well, we, you know, basically the way it, it is, is, hey, the fat, and this has come straight from Jason Medley, like, where Kiyosaki did get it wrong is I don't think he talked about the fact that passive income requires hyperactive active activity and income. Like, he's kind of like, oh, you know, buy some rentals, and then the mailbox money starts, even though you're leveraged at 80%. And so, uh, we, you know, we're saying, because there was like, for a while in our community, there was like this, oh, I have poopy pants. I'm not a business owner. I'm not an entrepreneur. So, you know, th- there was this, but I'm like, wait a minute. The fastest way to increase your income, because, by the way, the community is also hiring individuals, is to just do more of what you're already doing. Who cares whose name's on the sign? And so you take that, if you want that passive income, you generate the active income inside your entrepreneurship, and then you throw it into real estate and grow that long-term wealth.
2: Yep. Yeah, and that's what I tell all of my employees. In fact, every Tuesday morning, we have an all-team huddle uh, these happen Tuesday at 9 a.m. And we've got about 100 employees in office. And we've got about 35, 40 contractors working virtually and remotely. And so we all zoom in for this Tuesday morning meeting. And I, I went on a rampage because they're not making home ownership a priority. If you're renting, you're going backwards. You're never going to get caught up, especially with inflation doing what it's doing. You've got to own a home. You can't be renting, okay? So every single human being on planet Earth needs to own their own home, and they need to own at least one rental. you know. And for everybody listening to this right now, Jimmy, a lot of them don't even own their own home. They're still renting. So, okay, well, how do I get started? Well, step one, you need to go buy your own house. Well, I can't buy a house. I don't have a down payment. Well, that's where you're talking about that earned income go get a second job, go get a side hustle, do whatever it takes to get the money you need to get that that money down or go to Jimmy's training and he can teach you how to buy real estate with no money down. uh, And you can get yourself into a house. But that's step one. Step two, you need to get yourself a rental so that you have that passive income coming in. You've got the tax benefits, the write offs, you get to take advantage of the appreciation, all of the four pillars that you guys teach, which I think you guys do a phenomenal job at. But that's critical. You know, A lot of people come into this and they go, I'm going to be a millionaire real estate investor, but I'm still renting an apartment from my parents in their basement. Okay, you, you, One, get yourself into a house. Two, my preference, get yourself into a duplex. Uh, anytime I hire an employee that doesn't have a house, I will tell them, forget house. We're going to go buy you a duplex, triplex, fourplex that you're going to own or occupy. Because if it's four units or less, you only need 5% down, and we can get the seller to gift you that. And you've got three other people paying your mortgage. So that's what we're going to do. So yes, uh, I, I approach all of my employees as entrepreneurs because I don't want them to work for me for the next 10, 20, 30 years because they have to. I want them to work for me in the next 10, 20, 30 years because they want to. They've taken the knowledge that we have. They've taken the income we've paid them and they've gone out and invested it themselves. And now they have more than enough passive income. They're they're set financially. They can take care of themselves, their family, their grandkids, they're leaving a legacy, but they like to work and they love working with us. That's the employee that I want to build. And, And I'll just say this, you don't hire those employees. They don't exist. You create those employees when you bring on the best and then help and shepherd them to be you.
1: Yeah, that goes back to wanting to, just playing a continuous game, chasing that higher purpose. Right, yep. That, that was your most interesting line of the podcast is, you know, now that I, you know, what, what's my motivation to get out of bed in the morning? Now that I've covered that, you know, my, Basic uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And That's then right. In your experience, like, is that when it be it truly becomes fun?
2: You know, for me, it's always been fun because uh, I, I love real estate. I love I love watching the transformative process. Uh, And I've gone from flipping houses to now we're doing pretty large uh, commercial development. So watching, you know, a pile of dirt become uh, a multifamily apartment building or a commercial structure, I I love everything about it. Uh, But I no longer do it because I need the money. Uh, I now do it because I can and I want to and it's fun. Uh, And honestly, Jimmy, I don't know what else I would do. I, I can't think of a single occupation or career or or job that exists that I think would be more fun than doing what we do.
1: That's awesome. I mean, that's a true gift. Yeah. So if yeah, what, to, what,
2: what's the adage? If you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life.
1: Right. So if you were to coach a newcomer who's like, I feel have these feelings in my gut. I think I have a vision how would you coach someone to be a, you know, we talk about this a lot in casual tactics, but how would you coach someone to go from a purpose driven person to a, from a necessity driven person?
2: Well, well, first, we've got to, we've got to identify what the purpose is. I mean, what are you truly passionate about? Uh, there's there's an old thing about when you attend a church and, and identifying which gift is your gift. And and what people are encouraged to do is when you walk into a church for the first time the things that you critique are your giftings. So if you go in and you think, oh my goodness, why why is the music so loud? Why is the screen so far back? Why isn't it bigger? Well, your gifting is AV, right? You should go serve in the the audiovisual portion of the church. If you go in there and you think that you know the music isn't great, well, your gifting is music. Maybe you should join the worship team. If you go in and say, why are the chairs arranged this way? Why didn't they do it this way? Well, your gift is probably administration. If you go in and say, why did they spend money on that? Why didn't they put this in instead of that? Well, your gift is probably in finance. So you should be in the finance portion of the church, right? So when we look at business, what is the thing you notice? When you go into a store or a restaurant, what are the things that you notice that, that aren't being done well? You know, the employee doesn't greet you very well. Okay, well, your business might be hospitality. Maybe you should buy uh, hotels. Maybe that's what you should focus on. Uh, so finding that gift, I think, is critical. Uh, But then once we've identified the gift, now we need to identify the purpose. What do we want to use the gift for? Who are we going to serve through this gift? Now we have to figure out how to get paid to do it, okay? So I often ask people this question. If you didn't have to get paid, if you didn't need a job, you were financially set for the rest of your life, you've got billions of dollars, you can never spend it all, what would you spend your days doing? And they'll say, well, I'd like to, I'd go on mission trips, or I'd go to Ensenada and I'd build houses full time. Okay, well, great. If that's the, the heart's desire, now we just need to figure out how to finance it. So now we take the gifting, we take the core competencies, and we apply them to the business. So not everybody should be investing in real estate. Not everybody should be flipping houses. They don't have the stomach for it. They don't have the aptitude. They don't have the risk tolerance okay well maybe you could be a private money lender maybe you could be a private money broker maybe you could be in the title business uh there's there's so many aspects about business and making money that once we find where you are a strong fit and you can excel there and you can make a lot of money and then we can invest that money into passive things which allow you to go pursue the passion projects
1: and then i i have found that like becoming a more productive human, whether it's owning a business or doing anything like you develop that gift and then you're able to actually give that away. Like when you start out as like an 18 year old bleeding heart, like you can't be that generous because you don't know anything and you can't do anything. Right. And so it's like, you have to go through those trials and you have to learn to, to, if you, if you truly want to give you, you know, you have to take your, you have to bear your cross every day. And you get better and learn.
2: Well, and you have to focus on profit, you know, and this goes back to our conversation on the roof so many years ago, Jimmy. If we aren't profitable, we can't continue to help people, right? So So why do you think
1: there's a guilt thing around profit?
2: Because people grew up in some, you know, very stringent church where some pastor, preacher, pope convinced them that money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the love of money is the root of all evil. Money is not an evil thing. It's when every fiber of our being is focused on money and money only. That's when money is the root of all evil. When money is a tool and a vehicle through which we can bless other people, money is a tremendous, fantastic thing. I mean, money is the number one topic covered in the Bible. Jesus talked about money more than anything else
1: all right now this this is an interesting tangent to go down so the most i thought the most quoted thing in the scripture was do be not afraid do not be afraid that's constantly being said like i love when i hear it i love it
2: okay do do not be afraid of what poverty do not be afraid of not having a roof over your head do not be afraid of not having clothes uh there's a
1: sermon on the mount yeah the lilies are dressed better than you what do you got to worry about That's a very paraphrased way to say that, but.
2: Right. But But God also, Jesus also talks in great detail about money, the importance of being a good steward with your money, Uh, the parable about the master who leaves his estate in, in the hands of three of his servants. And when he returns, he asks each of the servants, what did you do with the talents that I gave you? What did you do with the money that I gave you? And one says, well, I was afraid to lose it, so I buried it. And he says, you evil servant, evil wicked servant, get out of my sight. The other one says, well, I was afraid, so I put it in the bank so it would draw interest. And, you know, I got a 5% multiple. And he says, okay, well, that's pretty good, you know. But then the third one, he says, hey, I took your money and I multiplied it. I grew it 1,000%. And he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Here's more, right? So this is the parable of stewardship and being a good steward of what we've been given. Now, right now, whatever income you're earning from job or social security or or wherever income comes from, how are you stewarding and shepherding that money to make more, to make it multiply? Uh, You talked about the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, well, let's talk about Jesus feeding the 5,000. How did he feed the 5,000? He did it with two fish and five loaves. How did he do that? He multiplied them. So when we talk about money and stewardship and multiplication of by being a good business practitioner and taking my two mites and multiplying them repeatedly, now I can benefit more and more and more and more and more people. You know, I love the story about um, Green, the founder of Hobby Lobby. They are now giving away 60% of their profits to charitable enterprise. They have an entire committee, they have an entire building dedicated to giving away billions of dollars a year. Because giving away money is no easy task, you know. You got to make sure it's going into the right hands for the right causes, that it's being sorted correctly, that it's being used properly. Uh, But none of that would have been possible without profit first. So profit is important to a business, but it can't be the driver. The driver has to be what are we going to do with the profit to bless others? And I think therein lies the conundrum. The love of the money. The driver is the purpose. The driver is the purpose. Because if the you look at classical
1: economics, like if you want to take a completely scientific approach and look at it, just classical economics, money is simply a means of exchange. Like we tried bartering horses, we tried um, doing all kinds of stuff. But like if you want two sheep and I want a horse, we there's nothing we can do we have to have some type of medium of exchange and right. so um the other thing that was coming to my head when you were talking it's just like what's the verse where jesus says i came here so you can have life abundantly and so it's right. so there's no points there's no points awarded for like li- living lower than you should be or being less productive than you could be
2: well and what father wants to see their kid down and out you know, struggling and suffering financially. No parent wants that for their children. But unfortunately, some children are going to make poor decisions and poor choices, which are going to lead them to a path of poverty. But we don't, we don't get to blame God for that because God gave us all of these incredible abilities and skill sets and talents and access. I mean, anybody listening to this podcast right now clearly has some means because they have an internet connection, they have a computer, they have a cell phone, right? They have some means through which they're getting this information. And if you're getting the information, then you have everything you need to go out and implement, utilize, and profit from it. So poverty is the result of laziness, not lack of opportunity.
1: And probably poor mindset. Yeah,
2: because because their parents were broke.
1: Well, here's the deal. If you're like an envious person and you're like, and you're an American and you're like, yeah, let's get the 1%, right? Like, unfortunately you have to look in the mirror and be like, worldwide, everybody in America is part of that 1%. It's just like, like my belief is that like this country, there is so much opportunity. Like you can't help, but get swept up by it unless you're putting a, a a rudder on yourself, unless you're there's something in your brain that is um, just hammering yourself.
2: Yeah. Your income is only limited by your beliefs. So, if you believe that $120,000 is a good year and that's a good income, then that's what you're going to strive to earn. Now, I don't want to sound like some jerk and say $120,000 is not a good income. For some, it is because that's where they set the bar. But what if you set the bar at a million? Suddenly, $120,000 ain't that great. So, where did we set the bar? Now, as entrepreneurs, you know, for me, it was I want to be a millionaire well, okay, we did that. Now what? Well, I want to be a 10 millionaire. Okay, well, we did that. Well, now what? Well, now I want to be a hundred millionaire. Okay, well, we did that. Now what, right? Where are you setting the bar? And there's probably a lot of people listening right now who are, you know, late 40s, 50s, 60s. They're probably on the other side of their career looking towards retirement. And the thing that they are struggling and wrestling with is, am I going to have enough money to retire? Or am I going to have to work longer? And I'll tell you, the one thing that most seniors are getting killed on is healthcare. They do not have the savings, the income, the assets, uh, and Medicare and Medicaid does not cover the expenses of the necessary drugs that they're going to need. the The nursing home care and facility. You know, it doesn't matter what age you are if you don't have passive income and real estate holdings your senior years are going to be very painful not just for you but for your 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 kids and whoever is going to be responsible for your care so i always like to say don't leave your success in the hands of others i would also say don't leave your health in the hands of others both you as the individual and those that are going to be footing the bill for that um, getting old is expensive as as my parents are turning 80 and I'm watching just the daily trips to the hospital and even putting my my own grandmother in hospice and then nursing care and then dementia care. I mean, it was $8,000 a month. You you can't cover that uh, if you're living on social security. So now more than ever, people need to be taking their financial well-being in their own hands and, and doing something now.
1: I'm just thinking, like, um, it's not just your financial well-being, it's your physical well-being, as we've talked about on this podcast, it's your spiritual well-being. It's all kind of interlaced. Yep.
2: And if you're not making it a priority for yourself, I can assure you nobody else is making it their priority for you. Uh, You do not want to become the, the product of the government or the responsibility of the government. And the only way to avoid that from happening is to take your financial responsibility into your own hands and do something about it now. Now is the time. You know, you don't wait to buy real estate. You buy real estate, then wait. And whether you think it's a good market, bad market, down market, rates are too high, rates are too low, doesn't matter. Whatever it costs you monthly to buy it, as long as the rents cover the expense, you buy it. Don't delay. Don't wait. Don't hesitate. Just do it.
1: And so what you said earlier, you encourage everyone to have a house and then everybody to buy a, a rental like
2: minimally. Our, that's that's the minimum.
1: Right. And our we say because we show people like, hey, two rentals a year for 10 years and you're set. It's a, it's inevitable. And it's just like, um, like, Lee, why is it why is it like pulling teeth sometimes to get people to believe this with all this proof? <laughs>
2: Well, I think for a lot of people, I mean, Jimmy, when you say two rentals a year for 10 years, to, no, to somebody who's never bought a house and is living in a rental property, I mean, that sounds like, that's holy cow, how in the world am I ever gonna pull that off? That's why I try to keep it real simple, right? Buy a house, buy a rental. Once you've done that, come and see me, we'll talk. Uh, and well, and, and I, this goes, and I, it, Go ahead.
1: The way I have get people over it is like, dude, you're hacking the system because it's not the houses, it's the underlying finance. Just with going on, if you have a base understanding of inflation, if you get a 30-year fixed finance loan on any asset, just because of inflation, if that financing is fixed, you will be wealthier. I don't care. Well, it won't be anything. You couldn't buy a a car that depreciates rapidly. Anything that won't, that'll still be a value in 30 years, it's just like you have to get as many of those loans as possible. It doesn't even matter what house is connected to them.
2: Right, right. Yeah. And, and, you know, even with rates rising and going where they've gone recently, uh, a lot of investors have pulled back. We're seeing wholesalers just getting destroyed because they can't move their product because so many investors have pulled out and said, you know, we can't cash flow at these rates. Well, just give the market some time and those prices are going to come down even further. But even with rates where they are, I mean, we're doing a deal right now where the rate is 9% interest, but the rental income is producing 15% cash on cash return. So I'm arbitraging six, even though I'm paying nine. So rates should never be the reason why you buy or don't buy only cash flow. So as long as the cash flow is there, you buy the asset. If the cash flow is not there, you negotiate the price down lower or you go find cheaper capital through private sources.
1: And what you mean by cash flow is not this is why I think newbies get confused and people who just read read Rich Dad Poor Dad get confused. Is like whatever that pro forma says as the cash flow don't be heartbroken if that's not what hits your pocket every month, especially the first year. Because what you just described cash flow to me as is a permission slip. Because you don't want to be feeding that house with your own earned income or that asset with your own er- earned income every month. Especially because I just see too many newbies be like, oh my God, I'm not seeing the cash flow my performer set in the first year being heartbroken.
2: Right. Yeah, and I would tell people you don't buy rentals for income. You buy rentals for wealth creation. You flip houses for income. You wholesale houses for income because those can produce 10, 20, 30, 40, $50,000 pops. Meanwhile, a really good rental in a really good neighborhood with really good 30-year fixed financing, you're lucky if it spins off 50, 100 bucks. But what if it only breaks even? That's okay. right? Right. Because five years from now, that house is worth 15% more. 30 years from now, that house is worth 50% more, and you've paid the mortgage off. So I agree with you, Jimmy, cash flow should not be the driver, but it should at least be net zero or preferably a little above zero to do the deal, but it shouldn't be the only reason we do it.
1: It's a permission
2: slip because
1: I've seen my, my, one of my first few deals I call I call investing for cash flow strictly. I call that being an XL millionaire. I bought a, for when I first started, I bought a four family in the ghetto for 80 grand. Um, the each asset, each, uh, each unit was $500 rent. So I'm like 80 grand, my mortgage payments, like 600 bucks a month. Uh, I should be getting two grand net in rents. And like, I was like, I'm all over this. And But since I only consider cash flow, I didn't consider the fact of like, hey, what type of human am I going to be dealing with who can only afford 500 bucks for the living space? And yep. like, we never saw that rent, e- even that 500 bucks. And so I see people getting into some questionable assets because they're so convulsed over that cash or cash return.
2: Yeah. Yeah. In business and in life, you don't get who and what you want. You get who and what you attract. And when you buy properties in war-torn areas, questionable areas, seedy areas, you're going to attract seedy, questionable people uh, that don't pay. I would much rather have significantly less cash flow or zero cash flow on a great asset in a great location where I can attract great tenants who make their payments and rarely move, because they're, you know, a good tenant in a good property will stay on average five years a bad tenant and a bad property will stay on average about 90 days. And so you spend all of your time churning and burning. Uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense to do that. But when we're early investors, I got I got similar stories like yours, Jimmy. I was so desperate to get into a deal that you know uh, I remember Robert Allen's book, No Money Down. We just talk about that find, all the time. Just go find the motivated seller that's willing to do 100% financing where you don't have to put any money down. Well, do you know why that seller's motivated to let you have their house for no money down? It's because it's a piece of crap. And they, they're they sh- killing themselves to keep tenants and collect rents. And they're spending all of their money fixing problems. So if you can come in and alleviate them from those responsibilities, yeah, sure. Here's my house. You can have it. Uh, so... No money down isn't always the best strategy uh, on some of these types of assets, so certainly asset selection is really important because it dictates who your tenant mix is going to end up being
1: yeah i just I, I don't the people who struggle i have a golden my golden rule of cash flow is that uh he who cares least about cash flow gets the most of it over time. I like that but to go to To go back our earlier discussion, those who are not detached from their cash flow, like struggle.
2: Yep. Yeah, and and I think it also comes down to being a one-trick pony, right? So I invest in real estate, and that's all I do, and I only buy rentals. You really need to have a more blended portfolio of of income opportunities than that. You know, I encourage my clients to just fix and flip and wholesale and wholesale until they've put two hundred fifty thousand dollars cash in the bank. When I got two hundred fifty thousand dollars cash in the bank, now I can go out and purchase income properties in better areas where I'm going to put 15 or 20% down to get that lower rate 30-year fixed mortgage without any accelerations or balloons. That's what I want to lock up. Locking up those types of properties in those types of areas with that type of financing is going to require cash down. Now, it doesn't have to be yours. You can certainly partner with people, but now you're giving away equity. So if I can generate cash through fixing and flipping and wholesaling and wholetailing, before I acquire buy and hold properties, I'm gonna be in a better financial position than if I just go out with no money, no credit and immediately start buying rentals. Cause I don't have the credit, I don't have the cash, I don't have the ability to get the better financing. So I'm gonna be relegated to war torn areas, troubled properties, troubled tenants, and it's this vicious cycle.
1: Yeah, that's a great point. So Lee, you'll be, the community is going to come meet you in two weeks at Cashflow Heaven Tour. Um, if they want to know more about you or more, you know, you know, when, when I look at Arnold, I'm like, you coach on everything. Like, kind of talk to us about what, you know, what your main, you know, your, what's your coaching business, how it works, what it does.
2: Well, the main crux of our business is the lending. So we are a nationwide private money lender. And so I educate people to find the types of assets that we can lend on, want to lend on, and are excited to lend on. Uh, the financing piece of real estate is easy if you simply find product that lenders want to give you money for. So we educate for that standpoint. So uh, whether they're getting education from me or you or anybody else, Jimmy, it doesn't really matter. I just want the loan. So I am a lender at heart. Uh, and if you want more information on funding, you can go to CogoCapital.com. Uh, anything related to our educational programs is at LeeArnoldSystem.com. And if you're interested in passive income by purchasing notes, uh, we originate loans and then we sell those loans to investors, uh, either as one-offs or through through their self-directed IRA investments uh, or their whole life policies. Uh, you can look at those at SecuredInvestmentCorp.com.
1: Awesome. Well, Lee, this was a phenomenal conversation. I had a ton of fun and it... Uh, I really enjoyed it cause it was completely unstructured. Was, <laughs> we went a lot of
2: places today. Yeah. We covered a lot of ground for sure.
1: So th- that was a lot of fun. So, um, we will see you in a couple of weeks and thank you.
2: Okay. Thanks, Jimmy. Appreciate the time. Thanks everybody. Good luck with your investing.
0: Thank you so much for listening to the Rise Up Live Free podcast. Do you want to connect with me and other empire builders who are on a mission to take control of their financial plans and become financially free in 10 years or less?
1: Well, then join us in our private Facebook group where we get to go deeper into the topics of financial freedom. And it's the only place you can see the actual results of people on their path
0: to financial freedom learn what's working and interact as a community dedicated to becoming financially free when you join you'll get immediate access to exclusive training in a private membership area this training will empower you in your path to becoming financially free and it will fast track your results this is the only place you get access to this exclusive content so be sure to join us in the facebook group now just go to cashflowtactics.com forward slash group or head over to Facebook and search Casual Tactics to join. I look forward to you joining us next time on the Rise Up Live Free podcast.